Welcome to FRT, the IEF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr. And we're in Stockholm again today, where our special guest is the Governor of the Riksbank, Stefan Ingvers. This is the second of our episodes from Sweden, after SEB CEO Johan Torgaby joined us on episode 40. Stefan, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you. Stefan, you visited us at the IEF offices in Washington in April, where you spoke at our Digital Currencies Roundtable. You commented on that day how refreshing it was to speak at the IEF about something other than the, the years of Bull 3 development. If we can follow a similar trajectory here, I'd like to start by briefly discussing your leadership of the Bull Committee from 2011 until earlier this year, before turning our attention to the present and the future, and in particular, the innovation in money and payments. So you chaired the Bull Committee through a pivotal period in which a challenging but very important series of regulatory reforms were agreed. As you reflect on that period, what were the most critical reforms and are there particular achievements by the committee that you're most proud of? It's, it's hard to pick up, pick out one single episode or one single thing that was decided. Uh, the key to the whole thing was actually that we were able to stay the course. Took, if you include uh, my predecessor, Laut Welling, almost 10 years to do this. And all these rules and regulations have not seen still not come into effect. So the key achievement was basically to get the whole thing done, to stay the course, to do the different bits and pieces, to do the LCR, the NSFR, the leverage ratio, uh, new risk-weighted models, the standardized approach, relate internal models to the standardized approach and make sure that the whole thing sort of adds up reasonably well. And then in addition to that, and this is important, it was generally accepted that we started doing the assessments to really assess to what extent various jurisdictions are in compliance with this or not. And that the transparency that came out of those assessments also were and are accepted. And that's quite a difference. Because if you go back mm. to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you made you came to all sorts of agreements in Basel, but then countries sort of wandered off and did all sorts of things on their own, and you never really knew if they were in compliance or not. So just to manage this process for almost eight years, there are elements of like herding cats as part of it. Yes, indeed. But getting sort of everybody back on track and finally, finally towards the end, realizing that they're actually is a consensus that we want to complete, that we want to finish this. And that's a remarkable project because towards the end of this project, we also refreshed and took a second look at the, the rules text and all the various rules text, texts that had been accumulating for a couple of decades. And we're talking actually about 1,500 pages of text. Mm. And just to get that done and to finish the whole thing, uh, uh, that's something uh, to be proud of. It's a mountainous but important task. And I, I'm glad you make the point about the transparency, not only of each of the, the jurisdictions, but I think also of the committee as a whole. And it's certainly something that we at the IF appreciated that you know, we've certainly noticed over the last few years that that, that transparency uh, has has uh, increased or improved, um, which I think is, is a great testament to the impact that you've had. I also want to mention that you, you gave quite a, a famous speech in Madrid in 2015, in which you compared the developments in the Bale Capital Framework to the famous Swedish ship, the Vasa. 
Um, as a tourist side note, I went and visited the Vasa today. I was sufficiently inspired by your uh, your commentary at that time. It's a remarkable site and a, an incredible piece of restoration. Um, I was particularly struck by learning of the enormity of the salvage operation uh, in 1961 and then the, the various preservation works ever since. So I hope that's not a metaphor for bank recovery and resolution uh, when such a scenario comes about. Let me add then to that, given, given your point, points about this, uh, this shift. I think it was important actually to finish this project. It was roughly the same individuals had been involved in this process for many, many years. And in the early days, there was a sense of urgency and people had seen the crisis. Many at mm. the table had lived through the crisis. Many, many others had sort of suffered through this um, at an enormous cost for both banks and society. The more you keep going after a while, it sort of peters off and the good times are back. And then it can easily happen that you sort of, you never finish. Mm -hmm. And also from that perspective, it was good that this group of people actually could finish this because had we added a few more years, I just don't know. Wouldn't have had necessarily the same continuity of people, which comes back to your opening comment about the, the criticality of staying the course. Correct. So perhaps if we, we pivot to what's happening today and what's happening into the future. And here in Sweden, it's certainly quite striking as a visitor that you have an economy that is now largely cashless, possibly the most advanced such system in the world, you know, I think at least on a par with the, the urbanised parts of China. What do you think has driven this development and Sweden's leadership in this area? Uh, are there particular characteristics of the Swedish economy that have helped to foster this development? Let me start out by saying that particularly when I talk to people coming and taking a look, let's say in Stockholm, what was going wrong, I get the question, who has decided that you're getting, that you're getting rid of cash? And then they, of course, point to me and say, okay, <laughs> did you do it? But that's not the case because the, no one has decided that this is the way it's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. It just has evolved this way. And there are some factors uh, that have produced this end result. The first is that the fact, the first factor is basically how technology has changed over time. And around here, most people are early adapters when it comes to new technologies using the plural. And most people basically trust banks, payment providers, and, and, and uh, supervisors that somehow the money is going to get to where it's supposed to be going. And then if that's the starting point, then the convenience factor using cell phones instead of physical cash is such that people are just basically moving out of town. Second part is the legal framework because our legal framework is organized in such a way that, that the concept legal tender doesn't really have much of a meaning because legal tender is tied to physical cash. But at the same time, since you, you aren't obliged to really use cash. Mm. You can do whatever you want. Well, then, of course, mm. then people say, well, it's, if it's more convenient to do it in some other way, then I'll do it in some other way. And in addition to this, I think that in a country of roughly 10 million people, used to a high degree of standardization, it's probably easier to introduce these types of systems in that type of society compared to if you try to do it in a country with hundreds and hundreds of millions Yes. And, and, and these sort of when you add up these factors, 
uh, then uh, this is uh, this is what we, what we get. But having said that, we also have some serious issues when it comes to different views on this, because somebody in his or her twenties in Stockholm they have no problem with this because they don't use cash anymore. Uh, but if you talk to retired people in the rural parts of the country, they just cannot get their heads around the fact that cash is disappearing, and for them. It, it's quite uh, quite an obstacle. So we, we, we certainly have some more homework to do uh, when it comes to figuring out how to do the transition in such a way uh, that also people with disabilities or retired mm -hmm. people uh, can figure out how to use uh, and adapt to these new technologies. The great point that Johan Togaby made was about the prerequisite of ensuring that people have access to the technology. And similarly in Canada, where I know they've done a lot of work across the banking industry on digital identity, there's the perception that on one hand, digital identity can be a great enabler of financial inclusion. But on the other hand, there's the risk that people that are in remote communities, and in Canada's case, stretching right up into the Yukon and the Northwestern Territories, might not enjoy the same access to technology in terms of the broadband, the telcos that people in the, the urban areas can. So there's actually a risk of financial exclusion if you don't get those under, underpinning pieces together as the, the right enablers and prerequisites. That is, uh, that is absolutely, absolutely correct. And we have exactly the same issue. I mean, Canada geographically is much, mm. much bigger than Sweden. But if you go to the northern parts of Sweden, basically identical to parts of, yeah. parts of Canada, very sparsely populated. But there the issue for us hasn't so much been the financial sector technology. The factor that really matters is cell phone networks. Yes. And to what extent you can easily connect to a reasonably fast cell phone network or not. And we have exactly the same issues very close to Stockholm, way out in the archipelago. Because when you get out into the Baltic, way out into remote islands out in the archipelago, if you run a business out there, then if the cell phones don't work, you just don't know what to do because people want to pay and, and you can't pay. And if, you, if you're paid in cash, well, then you end up with a lot of cash. But what are you going to do with all the cash? Take the boat to Stockholm? So yeah, yeah. that sort of practical, uh, practical issues uh, like that are actually quite important. So building on that, that theme around the modernization of the payment system, the, the right bank has been very much at the forefront of developing a central bank digital currency. Can you describe what the e-krona will do and the envisaged timeline for its launch? Time will tell, but there is also an element of, let me call it a sort of a value judgment in, in, in this, because there are all sorts of people sometimes also arguing against the chrono, saying mm -hmm. that it is not needed. We've been around for 350 years. In one way or the other, during this entire time period, it has been possible for the general public to hold a claim on the central bank. Mm -hmm. Cash. Or or in the early days, it was also coins. Back then, coins issued by the by the king. Now, in the late 1800s, we had a long, a 20-year discussion in Parliament about who should have the sole right to issue physical notes: private banks, the central bank, both, or the central bank only. Took 20 years to figure it out, and the central bank, the Riggs Bank, was given the sole right to issue physical notes. And then we have taken it for granted for more than 100 years in most parts of the world. Yes, yeah, most, that's, yeah. that's what you do. 
that's how you sort of run these things. And it's a promise to the general public saying that if you don't want to hold your money in the bank, we provide you with physical notes. You can hold them, you can hold them in the mattress or put them in a vault or do whatever you want. And that's the, that's the setup. Now, if notes and coins disappear because it's impractical, impractical to use them, then it's pretty serious not to answer the question, what about an e-crawler? Because I don't want to be the person who happened to be the governor during a, peri during a period at the end of 350 years, just saying, well, you know, money disappeared, so what? That's not a good place to be in. And for this reason, we have started this project and we have also handed this issue over to our parliament and explained to the politicians that in the late 1800s, you discussed this very, very thoroughly. You debated legal tender. What do we mean when we talk about legal tender? And then you agreed on a structure of the monetary framework that we have, which is pretty similar to what you have in many, many other countries. Hmm. Now, there's almost nothing new when it comes to, nothing new under the sun when it comes to money. Now, 130 years later, all this comes back because we have all these new technologies. And then we have to revert trying to answer these old questions once again. Sort of modernizing the mandate. Isn't exactly. It, for, for exactly, the technology exactly. And that's where we are. And that's why we have started this project. And that's why we do this and we do the e-crona pilot because that puts us in a position where we can go to the parliamentarians and say, if you want to increase the scale of this, and if you have come to the conclusion that cash disappeared, but we'd sort of like to maintain roughly the same structure that we have had for more than 100 years, then we have the technical capability to do so. But ultimately, it takes a value judgment. It takes a value judgment parliament to, to do that. Because what I have concluded, right or wrong, when I've been sort of thinking through these issues now for some years, is that you can't, you know, hire another 10 PhDs in economics and tell them to figure it out. They will never figure it out because ultimately at the end of the day, it takes value judgment. And that's why we have parliament. Yeah, I think there's quite a philosophical debate you can have there. And you, know, you made the point when we had the uh, the IF Digital Currency Roundtable in April, the same point you've just described about the ability of a citizen to have a claim on the central bank. Mm -hmm. And that's you know, controversial in some quarters, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, I can see on one hand the view, if we think of the BIS paper mm -hmm. last year around mm -hmm. the risk of exacerbating a run on the bank, mm -hmm. I can see the view that on one hand it's that perhaps becomes a, a faster medium for a run mm -hmm. that people can switch into a, a direct central bank exposure. And as you would say, well, they have that option with cash. If they do it with cash, then they need to find a way to manage the quandary of security and how they're going to handle that mm -hmm. cash. And a digital currency perhaps alleviates the citizen of that need. So on one hand, you could say there's a threat to stability here that uh, you've taken away a problem that the citizen faces, you've made that easier for them. And on the other hand, you could say it's important that we give the citizen the option. That's exactly the issue. And the issue is here to balance the system because we have never said and never claimed that the central bank will sort of, in some sense, take over the, the, the what private banks do. Mm. 
because they lend and they provide all sorts of other other uh, other services. And why, what I do think has been forgotten, or people haven't really commented on it when we discussed this, because it has always, and you refer to the BIS paper, carried out in the context of uh, central banks. But keep in mind that suppose we don't deal with this at all, cash disappears. Now then, in that environment, what is the general public then likely to do? Highly likely they will hold electronic public sector debt because that's the safest asset you can find. Mm. In our case, we have an institution called the National Debt Office, and then they will hold that type of debt in one form or the other. And if you do so, then you have basically, from this perspective, actually recreated the central bank. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, so the issue from that angle is not going to disappear. Now, what, it, what makes it even more complicated in a small open economy like ours is that, suppose this doesn't happen at all, using the Swedish krona, well then of course people will go for the dollar and the euro. Yeah. And my job is to produce a good called the Swedish krona. It's harder, it's not tangible anymore because everything is in computers, but it's still, it's a good or a service which people sort of have mentally in their head. And my job is to produce good stuff. Because if we don't do that, people will turn to other countries. And it's rarely explained that way, but that's my job. That's, mm. why, that's why we're dealing with these issues. You alluded to the point about the important role that you still want the commercial banks doing the lending in the economy, mm, for instance. I guess that presents one interesting challenge, that if a significant chunk of society's savings move directly to the central bank mm. in the form of the, the CBDC, mm -hmm then I guess you're looking for the, the transmission mechanism to get that money back into, whether it's commercial banks or other lenders, to, to funnel it back into the economy somehow. First of all, I think that your example is highly unlikely, and I'll get to that in a, in a minute. And when you sort of think about it and talk about it this way, I can't see why, why that would happen. But if it still happens using your mm -hmm. hypothetical example, well, then we get the deposits, the banks don't get the deposits, the banks come to us and they borrow from us. Yeah. And then the banks do the, uh, do, do the lending. But of course, ultimately at the end of the day, it depends on the design yeah, of, yeah, of, this, of this yeah. digital currency. Yeah. And if, if we create something which is digital, but when it comes to other features, is very cash-like, then we would not pay interest on it and banks pay interest on deposits. Yes. And that means that you should, you can more think about this in terms of a, in terms of a sort of a backstop. And some individuals hmm. will never ever want to have their money in private, privately held, privately owned banks anyway. So there will be an, a group of people will have a preference for this type of money and then, then they can hold it. And everybody else knows that if, if there's a problem out there, then the ultimate safe money using the Swedish krona is actually something produced by, uh, by the central bank. But you also get into other value judgments because you, you, you refer to the whole concept of an electronic ID. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. 
And uh, we just, I just the other day read in the newspaper of a government inquiry suggesting that we should introduce an electronic government ID in this and that sort of goes then eventually over time hand in hand with kind of a central bank digi digital currency in the sense that it says something about people's preferences when it comes to the social contract and how the state makes itself known in, in our type of society. Because today we only have a private sector electronic ID, a bank ID, and there's nothing wrong with that. But from a legal perspective, in most countries, it is actually the state who defines who you are and how old you are and where you come from and things like uh, things like that. So mm. state has sort of the state has to go with the flow and become digital as well. It certainly does. And I think you make a really important point there. I think we're going to see a lot more activity in the digital identity space. And certainly at the IAF, it's a piece that we're increasing our focus on. I think it's important as part of the issues we've seen with money laundering in different mm -hmm. places. But I think also increasingly, as you see uh, banks embracing the platform economy, um, that we'll see a greater linkage between private sector, you know, bank-owned digital identity structures with bank-owned platforms. Mm -hmm. And one scenario we might see is that, that citizens are using their bank ID as a basis for connecting to a central bank on their, their digital currencies, perhaps. No, that certainly, that, that certainly is, a, is an issue. And then that creates a need to define who you are in the digital space. Hmm. And then traditionally, because governments issue passports and, and, and then you Drivers need to find another way of so doing forth. it, yeah. and there are huge returns to scale. Uh, to do that on on the public sector side, mm. and it's it's a sort of a public good uh, to provide that. That does not yeah. at all exclude something similar on the private sector side. So that's not what I'm saying. Mm. You can uh, you can do both, but but in the end, you will create a need for standardizing digitally defining who you are. Yeah, you need interoperability between yes. those different digital yes. identity systems. Absolutely. Last thing I wanted to ask you, and, and I'm reflecting here a little bit on, on Christine Lagarde gave a speech last year at the Singapore FinTech Festival, her, her Winds of Change speech about central bank digital currencies and was very much championing that development. Um, we've seen relatively few developments so far uh, in other developed markets, certainly not to the uh, maturity of what you've been uh, piloting here in Sweden. Do you think your peers throughout the central banking community around the world are, are looking to the, the Riksbank's eKrona development as perhaps the pilot project that they're all looking to learn from? And, and to date, are there any things that, that you would highlight as, as key learnings? First of all, things have changed over the past two to three years because when we started out talking about these things, most people said, what on earth are you talking about? And that has changed completely because I think in, in one paper I saw the other day, at least 70 central banks in different parts of the world are looking into these things. So, most people have sort of come to realize today that physical cash, we might sort of like it. In some countries, people love it, but still the direct, directionally, it's pretty clear which way this thing is going to go. Mm. So then the issue is sort of who's first, who comes later and so on and so forth. And I sort of concluded that yes, many people come and talk to us about different things, but we, we already have a functioning payment infrastructure. 
So in that sense, and we already have, we can always, you can always already use cell phones and, and sending money from one cell phone to another, and this just grows and grows and the whole thing is much worse. So in many other parts of the world where you don't have that internet, with a fairly high likelihood, it probably sort of pays to introduce a central bank digital currency, because in those countries, let's say a country in Africa, it will be the only infrastructure available that works. Yeah. And in many of those countries, you don't have to go to forever to international meetings and argue about this, that, and the other. And you just do. So my guess is that before we get this thing done, it actually will happen somewhere else. Yeah, okay. But it will happen in countries uh, that will sort of surprise us. Mm. Because all, all the countries that you have in mind, they certainly have the technology and they certainly have the resources available to do these things. But that also means that we're sort of trained with all these intellectual people to talk about these things forever. Exist and existing mindsets. That and and there's an existing mindset. Yeah. While in other parts of the world, in other countries, it's obvious and it's urgent that you need to put in place a better payment system. Mm. You can you can improve people's daily lives by transferring money from one cell phone to another using central bank money. You can, you can increase the, the market economy can sort of stretch longer also in rural parts of the country. And you can do this sort of quite, quite efficient, efficiently. And that means that my guess is that I can be totally wrong on this one. It, with a fairly high likelihood in one of those countries, sort of they just do it. Yeah. And and we're very close actually to, to a state of the world on the technical side where you can actually buy these systems off shelf. And let me give you another example. It used to be if you go back to the 1980s, when you talk, when you sort of think about how to set up um, a, a stock market. And it was quite complicated. Everything was done manually. Everything was paper-based. Yes. You talked about the Big Bang in London, a major undertaking. But everything was constructed from scratch at home. Then in the 90s and today, we have moved into to an environment where you basically can buy stock exchange or any other exchange off the shelf because the technology already exists. Mm. And over time, this is going to move the same way. And keep in mind that the IMF has, I can get, get it, I can, I can be a few, a few countries off. The IMF has 184, 185 member jurisdictions or something, something like that. And, and that means that many will do this in, in one, uh, one form uh, or the other. Mm. My only guidance when it comes to this is an odd one, and that is that we have always been early adapters because I happened to watch a program on television about telephones. And it so happens that the, around 1900 or 1905 or something like that, the highest use of, of telephones per capita was in helping humans out. Yeah. So, been there, done that, and we will continue in that direction. 
I think when you mention Africa, you know, one of the interesting things to see there will be, you know, the extent to which they can make developments that are, are interoperable. You know, if I look at uh, what M-Pesa has done within Kenya in and some great work in terms of enabling financial inclusion, payment to payment, the weakness is that it doesn't connect outside of the local market. Mm -hmm. So it's it's fantastic for people that are operating locally, mm -hmm. but it has its shortcomings for somebody that might be an exporter, mm -hmm. for instance. So hopefully as we see some of these developments emerge uh, as an international community, we can hopefully help to ensure the, the interoperability of these different systems. Let me mention to you then one, uh, one, one example, and this is not about the central bank the digital currency. This is about payments. Uh, last week we announced that we're now in the process of uh, talking to the ECB to see if we can come to an agreement with the ECB to run their PIPS system, which is real-time gross settlement, low-value payment. Now, the system is designed to use the euro, but if we get to an agreement with the ECB within a year or so, we can use the same system for the Swedish program. Yeah, okay. And technically what that means is that we have maximum interoperability between the Swedish krona and the euro when it comes to, on the technical side, making these transactions. Yeah. The only thing that one would need in addition to that is an agreement in the private sector between the banks that if you, somebody has to do the, the switch from krona to uh, Mm -hmm. to euros and vice versa. But keep in mind that both systems are real time. So if somebody picks up on this in the private sector, then you can actually uh, make do these transactions in real time uh, from kroner mm -hmm. to euros and, and vice versa 24-7 all, all year round. Because then if we get this thing up and running and our target here is uh, uh, 2021, then we will make that technology available to the private sector. That sounds like a great opportunity. And my hope is that somebody in the private sector will realize that, hey, this is good stuff. We, we can actually use this because what we will do together with the ECB is to make this system available and we will design it with maximum interoperability because we will build the kroner part according to European and then it's for everybody to use. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll hear a lot more about that. It sounds very interesting. So thank you, Stefan. If I can briefly highlight a couple of the, the points you've shared, I like the way you, you describe that that uh, process that we've gone through on Val and the, the criticality of staying the course. Uh, and also the way you describe the, the evolution of the cashless economy, stressing that point you made that it, ha it wasn't an imposed decision and rather it's an evolution that has come from a variety of factors how, how technology has changed over time, the fact that you have people that are early adapters and the trust that people have for, for banks and supervisors. Um, the point you made about the, the legal system and the definition of legal tender and how that's conducive to, to innovation and convenience. I like that the, you know, we've talked about this on FRT a few times now, um, including with Johan Torgaby, but I, I like the way you've reiterated the point about getting those prerequisites in place in terms of the, the technology, the cell phone networks and how critical that is. The, the value judgments and the, the criticality there as we come across this issue of the benefits for citizens and the uh, implied rights perhaps for, for citizens, uh, weighing those against some of the, the stability concerns. Uh, it's a really interesting question and one that uh, uh, rightly comes to for, for Parliament to look at how they modernise that mandate. Uh, 
And lastly, I think that the developments that uh, you anticipate seeing in, in emerging markets, um, that if we expect Sweden will be the first of the major developed economies to implement a digital currency, but your point that we may see it happen elsewhere in the world first will be uh, an interesting one for us to observe. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Looking ahead on FRT, we have some further great guests joining us in the coming weeks. We'll have a further discussion on the ethical use of machine learning, building on a theme we've covered on a few episodes already. And also my colleagues Junishi Fujimura and Jonathan Fortune will bring our first Japanese language episode. Please tune in again for those upcoming episodes via the IAF website, on SoundCloud and now on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brad Carr and thanks for joining us on FRT.